1: It's the power and passion of Christ on display like nobody's ever seen. Join us as we look at it together out of John chapter 10, next on Truth For Today. There are times that we get a glimpse of the power of Jesus, and there are times we get a glimpse of His passion and compassion. Seldom do the two come together like they do in John chapter 11. Hi there. Welcome. This is Truth For Today. Pastor Phil Howard continues our survey of John as we take a look at the power and passion of Christ on display. John 11, verses 1 through 46. Here's Pastor Phil.
2: It is an amazing thing. Jesus says this in John 5. He says it here. He said in John 8:52, "Whoever is believing in me and has eternal life, there is a sense you will never see death." Argue with Christ about it. The mortal body, we drop it off. Disease, accident, who knows how you're going to exit this world. But he who has eternal life, who has Christ, he says, eternal life never will see death. There is no death, no termination to it. The mortal body can drop aside, will resurrect the body later, but you never miss a beat. You never miss a beat when you have eternal life. Even while you're physically alive, your last breath here, wow. You just keep going on. You never cease to exist. You never lose consciousness. You just drop the body, move out of it like a tent, and you're at home with the Lord. But you will not see death. He said it. I'm not making up a doctrine, I hope. I will not see death. Well, what do you see? I see the resurrection and the life. I will see Christ who's in charge of my death mortally, and he's already ended my spiritual death. I have eternal life that can never see death. It can even wake you up in the morning service. I mean, now what? uh, You can't, if you were a Greek reading this gospel, and the Greeks were expected to read it, they never heard anything in their life like this from philo plato or any of the greek temples because the body just is annihilated is gone forever and there is no afterlife the only thing close to it would be reincarnation and pray you come back as a good ant to swim out there but christ is saying mary Martha, the resurrection, the life. Now you say, well, that's nice. Anybody could say that, right? Come on. If you do this in the 60s and you're strung out on drugs, anybody believe you. But watch. He goes on in the narrative, and he goes to where Lazarus is, and he shouts, Lazarus, come out, and what did he do? I'm telling you right now, we have no gospel where you cannot conquer death. Death is the reminder that sin and its wages are ever before the human race. But someone entered, and in 33 years, he controlled death. He's saying, when I speak the word, even to a corpse, it comes alive you can count on me pulling off the resurrection, and you can take my word for everything I said. There, he is the divine destruction of death as we've known it. He make, turns it into a sleep. He says, Your life will not be terminated, and that doesn't mean much when you're 20 and when you're cool. It means a whole lot when you get old quasi-ugly and barely can get around. This looks better all the time. I shall never die. Because how can you ever really die when the resurrection and the life lives in you? Eternal life never dies. The mortal body we drop off to remind us we had an earthly existence and we lived among Uh, in just regular ordinary life. C.S. Lewis called our body our earthly tent. Paul said the same thing. We just drop it off and God will resurrect it someday, but it'd be totally a new outfit made like unto his. What a great prospect when you know Christ. Not only heaven made, but death conquered for you. He can conquer death, and he has for us. He goes on in this marvelous narrative. He does something that uh, is a little bit of a shocking thing. He enters the narrative. uh, He sees Mary, who is so special to him. Uh, Verse 32, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And in her world, she's just thinking, timing's the only thing we missed timing. When Jesus saw her weeping, and it was really a wailing kind of weeping, vocal. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, A Jewish funeral in these times hired professional mourners for two days. They were professional weepers. That was a legitimate funeral. So you had professionals, and you also had a woman really weeping, Mary, the sister. When he saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. If you ever can read The Person and Work of Christ by Benjamin Warfield, which most of you have never heard of in your life, a great Princetonian theologian. He wrote a famous chapter called The Emotional Life of Our Savior. It's one of the most magnificent chapters I've ever read in anything. And in other words, the Lord had an active emotional life. Compassion, tears, anger. He had the gamut of emotions all without sin. An emotional life, that was just a part of his humanity. And this is a tough verse for us to understand the translation. What does yours say? Was deeply moved? How many of you have deeply moved? NIV, is that what that is? It's deeply moved? This is ESV says that. Uh, does any have, uh, was angry? Any translations that way? The word literally means was angry. But because of the context, it doesn't seem fitting that Christ should be angry. Come on, a woman's weeping, a man's died. What in the world are you angry about? And so they've, they've taken this middle ground because there's no way in the Greek language that this word means uh, sympathetic necessarily. It really means anger, sternly rebuked other places it's translated. To be stern with, to charge people. Uh, It was to be agitated to the point of anger. That's the word. But men have blended it by the context it's used in to be, he was troubled. (laughs) And we don't know what emotion that was. The trouble seems to be primarily he was outraged. He was angry at the situation. We'll have to wait a bit to see why would he be angry. But I think that's the primary meaning of the word. He was outraged. He was angry at it. And then it goes on to say, in greatly trouble, which means doing this. It literally means to shake. The body was, he, he was like this. He is agitated and, and his body is showing it. But watch. This is why the word gets softened in translations. Watch. But while he's watching this, he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then he burst out weeping. The word literally means to have tears, but it's a narrow tense. And it means all of a sudden, emotion flooded him, and he is in a weeping. And the same word, used of him in the garden. That when he was being tested by God, he he wept, and with strong cryings to God to deliver him, he's crying out, Hebrews 5. And so you see these emotions running through the one who has perfect control, the one who has the ultimate power to change it, but he enters into it with anger Agitation, sympathy, tears. And so what all is going on in the emotions? Well, I would quote from Warfield and and other scholars. The anger is probably this. He's angry at what sin can do. That its end result is death. And that death has stolen his beloved friend, stolen a couple, two sisters and a brother, who always waited on him, were always kind to him. He's outraged in the face of death. He's outraged at the lack of hope in the room. The professional whalers are wailing, playing the music shedding their alligator tears for a fee. And he sees little hope being expressed in the situation. And even if you believe in a future resurrection, you ought not to be showing hopeless grief, Mary and Martha. He's agitated. Calvin said he's like a man that goes from here, like a warrior marching to the tomb. I will destroy the enemy called death who has stolen, my friend. I am agitated about it. I am troubled. And then he burst out with the emotion. He's weeping with Mary and with Martha. He seems overwhelmed at the scene. And so uh, scholars, they struggle. How can you have all these emotions in one place? It seems out of context. I have to say, as I thought was trying to figure out this interpretation, I'd like to make a true confession here. Uh, it's weird and you may need another pastor. When my kids grew up and they got hurt, my first emotion was always anger. Any men, Matt, you just, your face just gave it away. How many men ever get angry when your kids get hurt? Would you raise them high so I don't look stupid? (laughs) Look look at the men and the women. Wow, they're weird. I, I would. I'd get angry. And this is where it was. I'm saying, who hurt them? Who hurt them? Uh... Or even when it was an accident on their part. Couldn't you have looked better? you got to pay attention. I can't have you getting hurt. Men, is that the way you kind of think? Come come on, I don't hear any of you men. I'm out here on my own now. Because, I mean, they already said he's sadistic. No, I would get, i just, I'd get agitated. And, and first of all, I want it, and they're, ah, ah, now let daddy tell you how to do it the next time, ah, ah. They're not in any mood for instruction. Let's <laughs> first get it fixed. I saw, they sent me a video last night, my grandson was in a basketball game, took 13 stitches in his head, guy, did it like that. Well, if I was on the sideline with Jason, we would run out there and, bam, don't hit our grandson. I know that doesn't seem godly, but I don't want anyone hurting my kids. Now let me get meek. (laughs) But you know what? After anger, or in the same context, by the way, that anger is love. I feel I'm wanting to protect my own. Then you put the salve on and. You do the comfort. Now, women, you're just naturals. You just step in there, put the salve on, and all the lessons can wait till later. Let's comfort the child. Let's get the child well. Let's get them out of pain. Is that right? Is that what the women do? Raise your hand. You, sure. And, and you think, guys, get out of the room. I can handle this. I, I always say it's why all the football stars, when they get hurt, say, Hi, mom. <laughs> They never say, hi, dad, because dad said, why did you drop it? Why did you let the guy hit you? The mom is saying, I love my boy. Oh, and the dad said, oh, sick. Uh, get over it. It's just total. See, but I, it helped me understand you can have anger and tenderness in the same context. And it's sort of like what's happening to Christ. I'm not trying to get him to justify my morbid emotional life. But he's angry in the context that death has robbed them of joy. Death has turned them into weepers. And death came with sin. And he has come not only to pay for our sins, but to conquer the power of death. And he goes and says, Lazarus, come out of that grave. And someday... I will sound like a trumpet and the voice of an archangel. And I will shout the name of my own. And they shall rise from the dead. I will see to it that death is conquered once and for all. And I think he will say it with emotion. Come forth. Come forth. Can you imagine him saying that to every saint martyred for him or saying that to old Stephen? Get up, Stephen. They thought they were going to uh, put out Christianity in Acts 7. But I say, get up, stand up. I didn't come to be defeated by death. I came to end death for the righteous. <laughs> so this powerful conqueror, he comes to conquer death. And he weeps with his own in the midst of our death. What a Pat Potter's burying three loved ones within a year. The Lord Jesus. We used to sing a little song. It's really old. I had to look it up. You may have sung it. It's so simple, but I'll just give you the essence. We someone to care, someone to share, all your burdens like no other can do. He'll come down from the sky, brush those tears from your eyes. You're his child, and he cares for you. Casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Why do you think they called Jesus man of sorrow? They never called him man of joy. Although I know he had joy because he said in John 15, my joy, I leave with you. So he had joy, but he's also man of sorrow. He entered our sorrow. He entered our pain. Uh, He's already wept over you. He already interceded for you. And so I would just say, in this narrative, I see three things jump out at me. Divine timing is sometimes slow in our eyes. You remember what Peter said? Do not count the slackness of God to be as though he's not keeping promise. He's only delayed the coming of his son in order to save more. His delay has a bigger purpose than you wanting it right now. And whatever trial you're going through, whatever you're living with, as God's child, he's got a perfect timetable when he's going to deliver you, of what he's going to show you, What he's going to teach you, and often his delays are to teach us vital lessons about just, I'm waiting on him. I'm trusting him in the meantime. Imagine Job, the long wait. I mean, you can read the 42 chapters of Job, and you think it all happened in one year. You don't know. It was a pretty good while. Boils, burials. Loss of everything. Did God ever show up? Yeah, he did. In the whirlwind. And he said, I had to teach you some things, Job. And now I'm going to restore everything I took. As long as you know God is in charge, you can trust his calendar. You can trust his calendar. And two If you come to know Jesus Christ, whether you know it or not, you made funeral arrangements. You've already planned for the day of your last breath. And he will put you to sleep. And he will resurrect your body. And someday, you too will hear the shout, Get up! You're going home. I can get you there in spirit. Now I'm going to bring your body to spend eternity with me. Just because you believed in me, I'll see to it you never die. Eternal life never ends. And finally, I must say this. I have to let you go. I'm running late. But I must say this. One of the hardest things about pastoring is emotional gear shifting. Some of you look quasi mad all the time. Some of you can get happy once in a while. But did you know on the same day, in the same day, I've rejoiced and wanted to dance. And the same day, plan the funeral of a deacon and a weeping widow. And I don't know what mood I'm supposed to be in. I'll get a young couple coming in to plan their wedding. And I go over here to plan a widow's husband's funeral. One is weeping, heart sick. Another is just can't wait till next Saturday comes and let's say the wedding or next month. And so they're they're just exulting, enjoying all the prospects of youth and marriage and a family, wonderful. Surely, Paul said we weep with those that weep And we rejoice for those that rejoice. Let me ask you, do you have that kind of emotional wellness that you can do both? Or are you a stoic? And let me tell you, when the Greeks read chapter 11, they could not believe it and would not. Because the philosophy that guided Greece at this time was stoicism. And stoicism gave us the word, apathia. Ah, Greek negative, ah, pathos, no passion, no emotion allowed. The gods are not emotional. The gods don't give a damn. The gods don't care. And then God walks on the earth, the true God. He said, I weep when my people weep. Their sorrows become my sorrows. I'm not the God of the Stoics. I'm not the non-feeling God. Matter of fact, Hebrews says when he went back, we now have one at the right hand of God who intercedes for he feels and sympathizes with everything we go through. That's your Savior.